1: This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 29th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. The Environmental Protection Agency has just proposed sweeping emissions cuts for new cars and trucks through 2032, and the regulations could radically change what vehicles you can buy and what you'll pay for them. We'll have all the troubling details for you coming up. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at drivingtoday.com/autoinsurance. That's drivingtoday.com/auto-insurance. hyphen Well, on the autonomous vehicles front, one of the top companies pursuing self-driving technology had to sh- had to shut down several of its test vehicles recently and we'll tell you why a little later in the segment. Funny little story. In a special report that is very much worth reading, Reuters has reported that Tesla employees not only viewed video captured in and around customers' cars, but they also routinely shared those videos with others. I'll give you the details on that and our comments coming up. I'm sure we'll have some comments on that. Uh, I'm Jack Neerad. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris lives at one end of the country, I live at the other. Each week we get together to talk about cars, the car industry, and how you can get the most out of your automotive dollar. Chris, tell us what's going on uh, in your neck of the woods. I think you're having warmer weather than we are, probably in Southern California, for one thing.
2: Yeah, spring has sprung, Jack. We're up in the 60s, got some good driving weather, good walking and running and being outside weather. How about you guys?
1: Uh, it's been cool here. Uh, about uh, We rarely are breaking 60 degrees now in Southern California. I live on the coast, and so we're, we're getting that ocean fog comes in and uh, ocean overcast, and it stays with us uh, throughout the day. So a little cooler than you are which is kind of odd in, uh, in mid-April, but uh, there you go. All well with your family? Everything going great with them?
2: Everything's going really well, Jack. We're gearing up for a uh, spring break with the kids, and I uh, can't wait to take some road trips next week.
1: Ah, that should be terrific, and we'll get details on that coming up. Uh, when you get back, uh, your vehicle for this week is what?
2: I spent the week with the 2023 mitsubishi outlander plug-in hybrid it's all new for 2023 and i actually really liked it i can't wait to tell you about it
1: well i'm looking to hear about it i was road testing the 2023 lincoln corsair grand touring that's also a plug-in hybrid vehicle i had the chance to drive the new version for 800 miles or so i mean we were all over the place uh, as the nirad family this past week and i'll have a detailed report for you on that including its self-driving features uh, I had a lot of time to test that on the highway, and uh, we'll talk about that. It's now called Lincoln Blue Cruise 1.2, as opposed to what it was labeled before. We have a terrific guest for you this week. Chris Sutton is Vice President of Automotive Retail at JD Power. He's been on the show before. He oversees the JD Power 2023 U.S. Customer Service Index Study. This was recently released, and this year's study had some. Especially interesting findings, I'm sure you'll find what he has to say very useful. You want to keep up on uh, getting served right by, <laughs> by the automotive retailers out there and, and getting services good. So he's got some information on that. But before we do anything else, let's bring you uh, some of the most important auto-related news from around the world. And I'll tell you, Chris, I am worked up about this. I am worked up about this proposal by the uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to cut emissions from new cars and trucks through 2032, which in automotive industry terms is like tomorrow, is is really soon. The move could mean that two out of every three new vehicles automakers sell will be electric within a decade. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I'm just, uh, I'm shaking my head left and right over that. I just don't get it. Because we ha- we're we not close to that. Let's say EVs represent 10% this year. How are we going to get there? I mean, what's your off-the-cuff reaction to all this?
2: Uh, it's aggressive. It's absolutely <laughs> aggressive. I think that's about the best word that I can apply to this. You know, we've talked at length uh, about the different programs that are in, in motion trying to get – charging off the ground trying to get tax credits off the ground and then this is coming to kind of push everything from the back or maybe even from the top down i guess it's probably a better way to put it um i don't know how we're going to get there but this is uh you know, just the the edict with with no roadmap behind it seems very aggressive.
1: This is absolutely top down. I think you describe it really, really well. And, you know, a lot of people are suggesting that uh, this is a move that's being made now because the current administration is afraid they're going to be out of office or, you know, the control in Congress. Uh, will change uh, radically in 2024, and uh, they won't be able to do anything about this. I think that's kind of cynical, number one, to try and put something in place that can't be changed. But then I look at what they suggest the, the quote-unquote benefits are from this, and I just think this is very close to blatant lies. I, I just don't understand how they can uh, suggest... That this will amount for a savings a net savings of between 850 billion and 1.6 trillion dollars they say the proposal would cost about 1200 per vehicle i mean that's ridiculous <laughs> i mean we know what electric vehicles cost and the premium is not 1200 and even if we have economies of scale fairly soon it's not going to get to be uh 1200 i mean that's just just wrong
2: it's <laughs> plain wrong. One of their quotes is that they're, the standards are expected to save people twelve thousand dollars over the lifetime of the vehicle. I don't know that I don't know that that twelve thousand dollars is going to feel as valuable at the end of five years as it did, you know, when you're buying the car that probably costs around twelve thousand dollars more to begin with.
1: Yeah, and uh, I've seen uh, other figures, and e- even if it's nine thousand dollars or something like that on fuel, maintenance, repair costs, you're not going to save that number one because your initial outlay is going to be higher. It's also going to radically change. The car industry, the car industry is just not geared up for this. I mean, uh, some comments, uh, this is a quoting from a, uh, a Reuters story on this. Uh, Stellantis says, it was surprised that none of the alternatives in this proposal align with the president's previously announced target of 50% EVs by 2030. I mean, one edict here from the administration and then something else from the administration's EPA has got to have the industry just kind of more than scratching their head. I mean, these are billion-dollar Problems for uh, the auto industry.
2: Yeah, and I've written about this too. And this is me just looking at this cynically. If you look at the the, the diverging, uh, I guess, incentive programs and regulations and things, it just feels like the heads of these agencies, the Treasury Department, the EPA, and maybe someone from the executive branch, sit down and figure this out and come up with a cohesive plan so that we don't have four diverging uh, things going on here at once. As a car buyer, if I were shopping for an electric vehicle right now. I'd be scratching my head. I wouldn't know which who to ask or where to turn. And some of the automakers don't know where they're going to stand by the end of the year either, you know, the way things are changing. Uh, so I don't know. It's just very confusing.
1: Yeah, big time confusing. I mean, according to this proposal, 60 percent of vehicles produced by automakers need to be EVs by 2030. Again, uh, this is uh, we're looking at 2024 model year vehicles now. Uh, <laughs> the the to change the industry that radically that in that amount of time, I think it's just a pipe dream. And maybe it is political posturing. Maybe they don't expect this ever to be enacted. Maybe it's virtue signaling. I don't know. But to expect that two-thirds of the vehicles will be electric by 20 uh, 2032, of new vehicles sold will be electric in the United States by 2032. I mean, that's more aggressive than anybody has been talking about, uh, including many environmentalists.
2: Yeah, and it completely ignores the supply chain, which is not in place to support any of these things. So <laughs> I'm not really sure what, what's going to happen here.
1: Yeah, well, wild, wild stuff. And we'll see how this unfolds. It is a proposal. It has not been okayed. It has not been put into place, so... We'll see. Again, maybe uh, it won't, will We'll never be. Uh, well, we talked about self-driving and a, uh, Waymo, of course, is that self-driving company. It's part of Google. It's owned by Google, owned by Alphabet Incorporated, which is the parent company of Google. On uh, uh, Last week, they had to shut down some of their test vehicles in San Francisco because of a natural phenomenon called fog. All of a sudden, it got too foggy for uh, these self-driving vehicles to negotiate the road safely. So they pulled over to the side of the road by themselves, which I guess overall is a good thing, but it just shows you the uh, difficulties with putting together fully autonomous vehicles, doesn't it,
2: Chris? Yeah, and it makes me even more worried about the number of people who are relying on their vehicles in situations where they're not capable of of handling these things on the highway and darkness and rain and those sorts of things. So as you say, it highlights the difficulties of getting these things on the road and, and how far away we are from any sort of future where there are more of these things on the road, uh, you know, piling people around.
1: Right. Well, we'll see what happens on that. But uh, I thought I'd point out that tidbit. And here's another. And uh, this is a, a special report from Reuters. I think that really deserves more discussion than we have time to give it right now. Maybe we'll talk about it in, in an upcoming show. But uh, this is about Tesla. This is a an investigative report that uh, that many Reuters reporters. Uh, engaged in that found that between 2019 and 2022, groups of Tesla employees shared on uh, their internal messaging system videos and images recorded by customer car cameras. And (laughs) I mean, this is way troubling to me. And we've talked about privacy concerns. And I don't think this is just a Tesla issue. I think this is an issue that goes well beyond Tesla to any a uh, company that is uh, recording video in any way from vi- uh, from customer cars, uh, which seems to be happening more and more. I mean, what's your quick take on this?
2: Yeah, it's a cardinal sin, I think, in the tech industry to share customer data or to be careless with customer data. And this is just you know one of those things that intentionally sharing these this this data is even a bigger offense. But uh, all cars are collecting data, and so I think you know it, it behooves the customer to understand. What, the, what is being collected, who's got it, and what they're going to do with it when they have it. Uh, but sharing it intentionally like that, no excuse. That's totally inexcusable.
1: Absolutely inexcusable. And uh, again, maybe we'll talk about this uh, at a further length in an upcoming show because uh, <laughs> this precedent is just kind of mind-blowing to me. Uh, but when we come back, we'll be road testing some uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles, the Mitsubishi Outlander PHEV and the Lincoln Corsair Grand Touring PHEV. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Red with you, and thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. <music> Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague. This is Jack Nereh back with you for Road Test Time on America on the Road, and we have two plug-in hybrid electric vehicles to talk about this time around. The Mitsubishi Outlander PHEV was the vehicle test driven by Chris Teagan. Chris, tell us all about it. I'm curious.
2: Yeah, I really enjoy the the Mitsubishi here. And I don't know if I've expressed my fondness for Mitsubishi to you before, but I have a soft spot going back to uh, the mid-90s Eclipse and the cars, you know, that I grew up kind of drooling over. But Uh, You know, Nissan owns a big stake of Mitsubishi, and as a result, Mitsubishi's gotten some of Nissan's technology, especially in the Outlander, which is based heavily on the, the Nissan Rogue. Uh, The plug-in hybrid, Jack, this is a really nice vehicle. I think it's a little bit expensive. It starts around $40,000. My test vehicle was around $50,000. But you get a lot for that in the interior. This is very nice. And I wanted to ask you, have you driven the Outlander plug-in hybrid?
1: You know, I'm not certain whether I've driven the plug-in hybrid version or not. I have driven the Outlander uh, right at its introduction, which I think was a a couple of years ago now, maybe even longer. Again, based pretty significantly on the Rogue, but at the same time doesn't look at all (laughs) like the Nissan Rogue. I like the vehicle, but I, I just don't remember driving the plug-in hybrid at that
2: point. Yeah, you know, I think, so a few things. The the styling is, is polarizing, I will say that. But I think, by and large, the Nissan bones uh, are giving this, and the technology that it gets from Nissan, are big benefits to Mitsubishi uh, because it feels a lot more refined. So uh, this is a 2.4-liter uh, four-cylinder engine. is paired with two electric motors. Uh, it's got a 20-kilowatt uh, battery pack. Uh, it makes 248 horsepower, 332 pound-feet of torque. It's got standard all-wheel drive, and it has a single-speed automatic transmission. So it also has 38 miles of all-electric range. And so I think this is where we talked a lot about making the transition from gas to electric. And I think this plug-in hybrid is a sweet spot because, you know, when the 38 miles is gone, you have a gas engine that that's right there to to back you up, and you don't have to stop and think about it. But at the same time... Ah, uh, the battery's small enough that it's able to be charged at home on using a home charger level two, uh, in a few hours. So you're not going to wait days if you have to plug this thing in at home. And you know, so 248 horsepower is not a ton of power for this this size of vehicle, but 332 pound-feet of torque. It definitely feels lively off the line. Mitsubishi has some done some good tuning, so the handoff between the electric motor and the gas engine uh, are is very smooth. It's not there's not a lot of clunking and banging around like. Some of the plug in hybrids that we've talked about on the show. And the ride is smooth. It stays pretty quiet inside. Uh, And so I think, you know, from a a comfort and driving engagement perspective, you know, it's not the most exciting vehicle, but it certainly is comfortable, uh, which for a, a family vehicle like this, I think is absolutely the priority. But as I mentioned earlier, the interior is exceptionally nice in this thing. So it comes standard with cloth. My top trim tester had quilted semi aniline leather with heated front seats. Um, The only disappointment here for me, Jack, is that at $50,000, there's no ventilated seats, which, you know, when it's 45, 50 degrees in Maine, you don't really care about it. But if I owned it year round, I would think uh, that I would want that in my $50,000 Mitsubishi. But the front seats are extremely comfortable. There's plenty of room, more than I needed at six feet tall. Uh, The back seats are spacious for kids. There's a good headroom. My daughters can climb in and out of their booster seats without any problem. And then in the cargo space in the back, my 80-pound golden doodle can jump right in, stand up, and move around uh, more than I would like for him to. And there's absolutely no issue at all. There's plenty of space back there. Uh, And if you're carrying cargo, like large suitcases and stuff, no issues at all. Uh, It's got an 8-inch touchscreen, Apple CarPlay, and Android Auto. uh, 12.3-inch digital gauge cluster, which I really like here. It's configurable. Uh, You can choose what the information in the center display is. Everything is very clearly Uh, labeled you can see what's going on Uh, and so you know I really enjoy this tech this is the Nissan tech that I'm talking about here so it's not like this is a Mitsubishi uh, innovation but plenty of great features Bluetooth like I said Apple CarPlay Android Auto voice recognition dual zone climate control Uh, everything in here seems and feels cohesive mine had the uh, optional wireless charging so you're not really gonna be wanting for much if you buy the top trim from a tech perspective and then it's got good safety equipment too uh, so I don't think the new version has been tested by the IAHS yet, but it's got uh, forward collision warnings, pedestrian detection, so basically everything you'd want in a family SUV, Jack. I think my only complaint here might be the price uh, and some of the things that you get with it, but from a, an efficiency and a comfort standpoint, I can't complain about it at all.
1: Yeah. And that vehicle really is the top of the line for Mitsubishi. It is their flagship vehicle in the United States. So they they throw a lot at it uh, from a luxury point of view. And I'm, I'm right down the line with you in, in liking it and not liking the price nearly as much as I like <laughs> the vehicle. But I, I we're going to say that a, again in a few minutes. So <laughs> a little spoiler alert for what I'm going to say about the Lincoln Corsair, uh, also a plug-in hybrid in Grand Touring form, which is the the form that I drove it. It's a full-featured five-passenger luxury crossover. It is based on the Ford Escape but very well differentiated from this. I think uh, differentiated in the same way that the Mitsubishi is differentiated from the from the Nissan uh, there. Uh, filled with high-tech features. That's one of the ways they're doing differentiation including the Lincoln Blue Cruise uh, highway self-driving feature which I will talk about at some length. I think and in this review I had a chance to test it on Many highways going forward, so it was interesting to do. There's a lot of key changes to this vehicle for 2023, including the the blue cruise I just talked about. It also has now standard blind spot collision avoidance assist, intersection assist, which largely helps you avoid a collision at uh, a left turn in an intersection. Uh, they've gone to a much larger touchscreen display over 12 inches, so I like that. And they, They've uh, touched up the uh, design inside and out, so uh, a little different looking. I don't think people would stare at it and go, wow, this is different than the old Corsair. Not mm-hmm. that they have memorized what the old Corsair looked like, right? Uh, it's available in three trim levels, standard, reserved, and Grand Touring. The Grand Touring is the plug-in hybrid. The other two have a 2-liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine. The Grand Touring has a 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine running the Atkinson Cycle. An electric motor uh, that powers the uh, rear axle, continuously variable uh, electric uh, electronic transmission also has an electric motor in it and a lithium-ion battery pack. It offers 28 miles of all-electric range, and I would submit that uh, that's really not quite enough. I'd, I'd like to see more all-electric range than that. I, I, it really depends on your duty cycle, but um, I'd like to see something you know maybe approaching 50 you know, more than uh, the typical commute out there. The vehicle I had was really well-equipped, 24-way leather seats. They're perfect-positioned seats from Lincoln. It had 20-inch wheels, all-season tires, and it cost MSRP $65,970. Uh, that includes the $1395 destination charge. I mean, that's a lot of money <laughs> for a compact-size luxury utility, but I think it's probably competitive. Uh, it, just, it just strikes me as, wow, this isn't that big a vehicle with this high price tag, but uh, that's just what we're looking at these days. Give me your quick reaction to uh, to the Lincoln Corsair overall, and then I'll, I'll dive into this Blue Cruise.
2: I think the Corsair is a, a nice vehicle. I think, as you said, the price does set me back a little bit, especially given the size, but I think the plug-in hybrid drivetrain Uh, matches well with the size, and I think Ford's done a good job, or Lincoln, I should say, has done a good (laughs) job tuning it. Um, but you know, I do. I get hung up on the price tag a little bit.
1: I love the driving experience, and I drove this thing for 800 miles. I drove it out to the desert. I drove it up to San Luis Obispo uh, with my family uh, many times. We had four or five aboard, and it was just terrific. Uh, plenty of luggage space. So it's it's kind of a big compact <laughs> luxury SUV. It's got more uh, cargo space than many of them do, but it's not a, a super large vehicle, as you as you can probably guess. In one form, the Lincoln Blue Cruise system has now added a lane change assist feature where you can signal it by clicking on the turn signal stock and it will initiate a lane change when it feels it's ready to do so, (laughs) when it feels it's safe by consulting with all the cameras and radars and et cetera that guide the system. I mean, that is a leap of faith, let me tell you, uh, to let this vehicle do a lane change, but it, it executes it. Uh, quite well. I'll, I'll get into the nuance there because the nuance is is interesting. Another uh, enhancement uh, of this system is in uh, what they call in-lane positioning. And you've probably experienced this, Chris. You come up, you're in the left lane and you're coming up on a semi-trailer truck or something like that. And your natural inclination is to give that vehicle a little more room than you would otherwise. You don't want to be exactly centered in the lane. Previously, that's what it would do, is center in the lane. In this instance, it moves over to the left a little bit and gives that vehicle uh, a bit more. The the, the whole goal of 1.2, I think, is to make this more human-like. It's more like a human is driving the vehicle. And I guess that's both its major strength and where it still needs in my view, uh, maybe a little bit of, of tuning. And uh, on the uh, plus side, this is a, a great vehicle uh, in terms of just driving. Uh, I felt uh, very comfortable with the way it drove. Love the big touchscreen. It's actually uh, larger than I indicated. It's 13.2-inch touchscreen. So that's terrific. Price is $65,000. You can decide whether that's a value or not. It is a plug-in hybrid. But uh, I like the vehicle a ton. And I would use Blue Cruise maybe Blue Cruise sparingly, but I like that uh, ability to use that. So overall, I think this is a terrific vehicle, and I think we've had two very good ones in, in this segment. I agree. And when we come back, we will have a great interview for you. It is uh, Chris Sutton. He is Vice President of Automotive Retail at J.D. Power talking about the U.S. Customer Service Index Study. So stay with us for that. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Rad, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at EM Lancy Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arnie Redd. Thanks for checking it out. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jackie Redd back with you. And uh, so glad to be with you for the interview portion of our program. We have a terrific guest for you. Chris Sutton is Vice President of Automotive Retail at J.D. Power, and we're going to be talking about uh, one of the most important studies that J.D. Power does. It's their U.S. Customer Service Index study. Chris, number one, thanks for being with us, and describe this study a little bit and why it's important.
0: Yeah, the the study is a measure of three years of ownership, right? So we survey new car owners over three years. We get feedback from 67,000 customers, and it's really about their experience with dealership service departments. Um, So we know that for most customers, that service experience has a tremendous impact on loyalty. So for that reason, a lot of the automakers put a lot of emphasis on that study because, again, it's got a really tight link between performance here and uh, longer-term loyalty.
1: Yeah, and loyalty, of course, is what they want. I mean, they certainly want people to come back and buy cars from them again and again and again it's probably the best source of uh, sales for auto manufacturers so certainly keeping that service customer happy is a good one and it, it strikes me that this year there's something that maybe is not quite so satisfying right I mean let's talk about that
0: yeah you know historically we've seen uh the industry has improved um you know typically three to five points a year so we've seen this really kind of nice steady progression over the last shoot 10 15 years and this year for the first time in in several years we saw a a couple point decline again not a dramatic decline but uh, a couple points and there were a couple contributors to that and and one of the interesting takeaways was as evs are starting to pick up market share on the sales side and now we're seeing them coming to service departments is The feedback from the service customers of EV owners was not great. You know, on a on a thousand point scale, the ice owners or gas combustion owners would typically they rated their vehicle service experience in 846 on the mass market side, where among EV owners, it was dramatically lower at 799. So 47 point difference in our world. That's pretty big gap between those two owner groups.
1: Interesting too that uh, a lot of people tout uh, electric vehicles as uh, requiring less service that might might have some effect on this too right but uh, or and the service is simpler uh, that would seem to indicate that uh, maybe that could uh, would have you'd have a higher index for those folks they'd, they'd be more satisfied it would be easier to do uh, but this is pretty nuanced, isn't it? So walk us through this.
0: It's a gr- it's a great point because that you know that's the that's the promise, is that EVs are going to require less service that the owners are going to need to take them to the service department less frequently. At least so far, we're not seeing that. You know, the typical ICE vehicle owner is going to take their vehicle in for service a little over twice a year, which I think we most of us experience that. You know, I get an oil change, may have some other work done, and the premises, an EV owner, maybe I take my vehicle in every couple of years. I'm still going to need to replace tires, of course, and things like that. But to this point, we're seeing it's not that much different. You know, the EV owner is servicing, and it doesn't matter whether it's Tesla or other brands, a little less than two times a year. So, pretty much on par. With ICE ICE vehicle owners, so not that not that much of a difference today. We'd expect it over time, but to this point, we're not we're not seeing that.
1: It seems like maybe the type of service is different, right? I mean, you, you have some recalls for uh, EVs that are uh, maybe a different kind of service than uh, ICE vehicles and internal combustion engine vehicles are getting.
0: We we are, you know. So again, there's going to be similarities and things like tire replacement. That's going to be the same. Um, we are seeing. Um, you know, it differs a little bit by brand, but to your point, we're seeing recalls, which I think is to be expected. It's you know new model, new model and entry. I, I don't think that's uh, unusual. And then also things like software upgrade upgrades and updates that might be, you know more time consuming than originally thought. So uh, you know those that combination of items is is rolling up to you know, a number of service events uh, is honestly not that much different at this point from the ICE vehicle ownership.
1: You know, the service advisor is a critical portion of this, right? I mean, the the person you pull up to in the drive at the dealership and you talk to him about, you know, what you'd like done with your car and what he suggests being done or she suggests being done with your vehicle. Are are people more critical of uh, service advisors on the EV side than they are on the internal combustion engine side, do you think?
0: They are. And, uh, to your point, you know, when we look, we typically look at five different areas within the service experience around quality of work, facility, people, um, convenience, ability to get my car in for service. And, and you know, some of those can be challenging, of course, and usually that advisor relationship is the area where the dealers usually do pretty well. You know, it's the highest scoring of the five areas and in this case for the EV owners, that is, we're not seeing that, uh, again, they're rating that lower. It's 46 points lower. So it's, or it's really about the same as the overall ownership gap. So it's like, that's not enabling the retailers to make up any ground on CSI, the, the, that we're seeing a gap on the experience with the advisors, just as we are overall.
1: Do you get the sense that the, uh, EV owners, I mean, these are early adopters still, I think uh, you and I would agree on that. And, uh, you know, maybe they're pretty and they're uh, likely very knowledgeable about these vehicles. Is, is that part of the issue, do you think? It, it, it's got to be.
0: Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see is the next group of owners or the, do they have that same gap or uh, knowledge uh, difference between themselves and the retailer personnel. But I think that's part of it right now. It's like a group that's done a lot of research about the vehicle uh, maybe not as much on the service side or maybe that starts to get technical and that maybe helped explain some of the frustration a little bit. And I think to this point, you're looking at a retail network that this is still, even though the share is growing a lot this year, this is a tiny percent. If I'm looking at a 10 years of vehicles coming in for service that I'm dealing with, it's going to be a small percent. And I think this this gap between um uh, a knowledge between the two groups is explaining that and the other thing is it it maybe it's a function of the customers are asking different types of things
1: well let's dive into that a little more if you got detail on that because you know certainly questions on range uh, range as uh, affected by temperature for example i think this comes to, as a surprise to many ev right. buyers uh, you know first time ev buyers uh,
0: yeah i i think one of the other aspects of this that uh that I think is is interesting is that for for a lot of customers you you mentioned range is going to be different. Um, I think uh, differences in charging vehicles locations we're seeing in some of our other studies that some of the locations aren't always operational when the customer comes to those locations and there's some you know there might be some frustration there. One of the other parts I thought was was interesting is that again I think for the ICE vehicle owners. One of the issues we've had in the industry for the last couple of years is it's it's getting, and I don't think this is unique to auto, it's getting more and more challenging for customers to get service appointments quickly. You know, we're seeing that go up basically about a day, a year, a lot about it. And depending on the brand, over a third of customers are waiting over a week to get a service appointment. So I think owners are getting more and more used to this. And I think for an EV owner that may be expecting a really convenient experience. Oh, if I need a software upgrade, either they're going to come to me or or I'll go into the dealership to do this. Some of these things t- may take much longer than they had anticipated. And it's really up to important for the retailers to be communicating, look, this is a longer upgrade. We're going to need to keep the car for a little bit longer than you might have expected. So like that clarity of communication is really, really important for on, on both sides.
1: Does this um, strictly look, well, I can't strictly look at, at at franchise dealers, I don't believe, right? I mean, some of these Uh, retail operations and service operations have to be direct, uh, you know, operated directly as many of the the new EVs coming into the marketplace are doing. Tell us about that and how that affects all this.
0: Good, good, good topic. You know, we we don't, we capture information on Tesla in the study. We don't rank them because I don't, I don't have data on them in in all the states so it's like it's not representative so we capture data we don't rank them on it one of the things that i thought was really interesting is that a good percentage of tesla owners are able to service and get these software upgrades done at their home or office 19 percent in our study we know that based on the representativeness of some of the states probably higher than that but the feedback from those customers is great, you know. Again, on this thousand-point scale, those customers are rating the experience in 920, which is in our that's fantastic in our study for something the customer really probably isn't that excited about doing. So that feedback we're getting on those customers was great. Uh, at the others, uh, you know, the other hand, if customers do need to go into a Tesla service facility, they're having the same type of wait. It's taking around 10 days on average to get in for a service appointment. So those customers are experiencing the same frustration, but at the same time, those customers are able to do it mobily, take care of it on their phone, uh, book their appointment. That's proven to be a really good experience. And I know a lot of the traditional manufacturers are looking at this idea of mobile service and customers are responding really well to it.
1: What are some of the other takeaways from this edition of the customer service index?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think to me, uh, a couple takeaways are, again, days wait. So if I'm a customer, look, I need service. Let's be sure to build in an an, an extra week or two, whereas before I might have called a day or so in advance. We're seeing a lot of application of technology into the service department.
1: Well, terrific. Uh, Chris Sutton, Vice President of Automotive Retail at J.D. Power. Thanks so much for being with us. We do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jack. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine, Jackie, right back with you for listener question time, and we have some, I think, very interesting, involving listener questions. Probably help you out by listening to the answers to these listener questions going forward. Uh, so um, let me dive right in. You can, of course, get your listener question to us by sending them to editor at. Editor at drivingtoday.com. Jeez, so suddenly blank there. Editor at drivingtoday.com, where you can send your listener question. Here's a question from Kelly in Omaha. Our, our family is thinking of getting a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid vehicle the next time we buy a new one, and it'll probably be an SUV. Do you have any suggestions for us?
2: Yeah, I think a few. Uh, I guess it depends on your driving style. If you're looking at a plug-in hybrid or a hybrid or what you know, how you end up driving every day, if you have a shorter commute, you know, a few miles a day, a plug in hybrid could give you all electric range. You might not need the gas engine until you take like a road trip or something. Um, and hybrids are around the same, but they they don't do as well on the highway in terms of efficiency as a, a gas engine, or I should say their efficiency gains are not as significant on the highway as they are around town. Um, other than the two plug-in hybrids we talked about earlier, I think the Mitsubishi Outlander is a great option uh, on the lower end of the price spectrum. There, standard hybrid SUVs, Jack. I don't know the Honda the Honda CRV hybrid, the Toyota Rav4 hybrid are two uh, compacts that I really like. In um, the mid-size, I think the Highlander hybrid, and maybe even the Santa Fe, if you want a, the Hyundai Santa Fe, if you want something a little bit bigger. Uh, but that could also be a plug-in hybrid too. So uh, the world is really your oyster right now with hybrid and plug-in hybrid SUVs. There are a lot that are out, and maybe probably more even coming soon. So what do you think, Jack?
1: Right. If you want to stretch the envelope a little bit, you could go to the Toyota Venza, which isn't precisely an SUV, or it's kind of a wagon in a way. A uh, I, I kind of newest tomorrow-looking wagon, and a vehicle that has gone from something I scoffed at to something I, I truly I think is a terrific vehicle so uh, that's certainly one I would look at what I would suggest too is uh, when you look at the price difference between a hybrid and plug-in hybrid vehicle you know do some math and, and you know do or you know at least pay attention to that because some of the hybrids I, I think are so aggressively priced right now which means good uh, that you can get into a hybrid for not much more than a, a basic non-hybrid vehicle, and I think you're going to get much better fuel economy. Uh, so the payoff period should be pretty uh, pretty short. Whereas with a plug-in hybrid, maybe not so much. I mean, you really have to look at that uh, uh, to determine whether you're going to, whether that's going to pay off for you. I, I mean, there are advantages to that beyond s- simple dollars and cents. I mean, it's nice n- to burn less fossil fuel. We're in favor of that, putting out, uh, you know, fewer emissions. But, um uh, I think you've identified some, some pretty good choices there. And uh, it's interesting to me that Honda has uh, kind of picked up the, the hybrid baton after <laughs> not wanting to, to carry that uh, for you know, the better part of a decade while its key competitor, Toyota, was. Uh, but now they're getting back into that stuff. So uh, and that's a pretty good one. The, the CR-V hybrid, I think, is a good vehicle.
2: Yeah, it's even more fun. Or I say it's more engaging to drive than the regular gas version. So they've done a good job of it. Absolutely true. Well, let's take
1: this question from Ben in Newport News, Virginia. Um, he says this. I've heard a lot of rumors that the Chevrolet Camaro is going to be discontinued. Are you hearing the same thing? Do you think they'll make an EV version? I love Camaros and I'd hate to see it go.
2: Let me break out the crystal ball, Jack. I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's it's kind of hard to say. But, yes, yeah, so the Camaro, as you know it or as we know it, is going away uh, probably at the end of this year, I think, right? 2023? Yeah, yeah. Um, And, I do believe the nameplate will live on. Now, what that will look like when it comes back and what will be powering it, I think that that remains to be seen. I'm pretty sure it would be an EV at this point in time. Um, and, um, you know, who knows what the body style will be. But, you know, GM's Ultium platform is quite flexible and can underpin a variety of types of vehicles. So um, it will be interesting to see, Jack. What do you what is your prognostication here?
1: I think what you just pointed out is probably uh, the way they're going to go. I think there's a lot invested in the Camaro. Uh, I think the Camaro is a well-known name uh, and something that, uh, you know, certainly has a um, performance connotation to it that uh, excite a lot of people, and I, I think ex- excite a lot of people of various ages, you know, from young to, to baby boomers who grew up with Camaros, and, and th- I thought they were really cool. Uh, sales have really fallen off for that vehicle, although I think the rumors of its demise have kind of perked up sales a little bit uh, for this year, uh, and maybe uh, which is will be the final year of what we're looking at here. Uh, Chevrolet has confirmed this. This isn't just a rumor. This is is going to go away, but maybe come back. They haven't confirmed how it will come back or what it will co- come back as. But I think the prognostications are that uh, it will be an all-electric because General Motors is uh, gung-ho all-electric. And as you say, they have a platform that can, can support it, I think.
2: Well, let's just hope they keep it as a car and not bring it back as a crossover. <laughs>
1: What are you talking about? You don't like the Mustang Mach-E? I mean, what's your
2: take? No, I'm fine with the Mustang (laughs) Mach-E, but they also still sell a regular Mustang at the same time, so you don't lose the car version of it as well. So let's, you know, uh, I don't care if it goes electric, just keep it, at least offer a car if you're going to offer a crossover at the same time.
1: I'm right with you there. Absolutely with you. Well, here, let's take a question from Ginny. She's in Dana Point, California. We're thinking of getting an EV, and our family has recently leased several Mercedes-Benz vehicles. Very nice. Are the Mercedes EVs good vehicles?
2: I haven't driven one, but I have thoroughly and extensively researched all of them, and I could tell you they have some very innovative battery technology that improves charging times and things like that. The technology looks amazing. Some of the optional features in these vehicles are, you know, out of straight out of the the future, some of the screens and things that you can get, and you know they're they're very aerodynamic and they have decent range. I think the only drawback there is the price. But if you've already been leasing and owning Mercedes-Benz vehicles, you're probably not that not going to be that shocked by the price tag. I don't I don't think. Um, but yeah, they look fantastic on paper, Jack. I haven't driven one. Which ones have you been behind the wheel of?
1: You know, I'm trying to think. I think uh, I have certainly tested at least for a week the EQE, uh, which is essentially the E. E-class equivalent. Uh, And I liked it a lot. I mean, our family liked it a lot. Uh, My wife loved the amenities of it. Uh, She just... And... uh, I think it's one of those vehicles that has driving dynamics that are very much like an internal combustion engine car, much more so than many of the other EVs that I've driven. And I think a lot of people will appreciate that. And I think if you're graduating from an internal combustion engine vehicle into an EV, you will really appreciate that. So, uh, you know, I w- to Ginny, I would say go ahead and look at those Mercedes Benz EVs. Um, you won't be blown away by the prices because you're already spending that kind of money on a on a lease. Uh, and um, go ahead and and give that a try. I think that that would be uh, a good situation for you in Dana Point, California in particular.
2: Jack, I will say just really quick, I have seen some hints and things of lower price leases people have been able to get into these things for an EQE specifically for around. 5 600 bucks a month in some cases. So if that is the uh, if that's the case and you can find that I, I would absolutely go for that even even you know over a, a another EV brand I think it would be a great great move.
1: Yeah, and I think you get bragging rights where all everybody else is driving a Tesla you've got you got this cool uh, electric Mercedes I think that would be a very very good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, well Chris, tell us a bit about uh, your com.
2: Yes, once again, we've extended the giveaway of our Skip Barber Racing School and O'Neill Rally School tickets. We're giving away one day pass to each school to two lucky people. So I guess one each to two lucky people. Uh, We're going to run that through the end of April. All you got to do is go to yourtestdriver.com. There you can find the article outlining the rules. All it really takes is following us on Instagram, tagging a friend and following us on Facebook. So it's that easy, free to enter. And these prizes are very expensive and very thrilling. I think it'll be awesome for whomever wins them.
1: Terrific stuff. You absolutely have to do that. Go to yourtestdriver.com. Check that out. uh, Enter. uh, Great stuff on that website. So uh, look for that. Um, If you would, look for my book. It is called uh, Dance in the Dark. It is a crime thriller. Has not very much to do with cars whatsoever, but (laughs) has a lot of action and crime in it. So uh, it might be a good uh, spring or summer read uh, for you. Um, Check that out. It's at uh, Amazon in both Kindle and paperback form. So look for that. Uh, Our our great thanks to you for listening to America on the Road, for being fans of the show. And if you like the show, please pass it on uh, to another listener or somebody else who you think might like listening to it. Um, Chris, what do you have to
2: say uh, to our SportsMap radio network station? absolutely jack i've had a great time with you this week everybody i had a great time talking to you if you like what you heard take a look at our show on sportsmapradio.com you can find us on the saturday morning schedule uh there as jack mentioned you can find our podcast uh both in the radio format and uh, on all the major platforms so you can take us with you in the car and wherever you go uh and help us out subscribe there too we have uh, all the same content we have a lot of the same stuff so uh check us out on apple Podcasts and spotify and everywhere else yeah We'd
1: love to have you do that and join us again right here next time for another edition of America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Rad, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him. He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel. So he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancy Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red